Corey Truax. Welcome to hour number two of Christian Worldview with Tony Beam. Glad to have you with us. If you would be so interested, you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. My name's Corey Truax. I'm easy to find because I'm like Tigger from Winnie the Pooh. I am the only one. You can also oh, you can't find me on the Snapper Chatters or the Ticker Talkers because I'm a grown man and I don't belong there. My objection to TikTok is not that it's a Chinese company spying on us all. It's that that's where the children are, and we uh, just don't we don't belong there. You know, I'm closer to 40 than I am 35 now. I'll be 37 in 10 days. That happened quick. <laughs> it's, you know, I work around college students constantly, and it just becomes more and more apparent to me, and I'm okay with it. I, I kind of like aging. I'm going to toss it out there. I much prefer 36 to 26. It's way better. And I think I'm going to prefer 46 to 36. I like aging. But it becomes more and more apparent. Like, 20-year-olds look like children to me now. They look like kids. And they use words I don't know. They I they were all talking music recently. I was just listening in. I didn't under I didn't recognize one artist. I didn't know one of them. I didn't recognize one name. Like, do you do you guys do you guys know about A C D C? anybody in the group? They're pretty good. I like that. Anyone know a Bon Jovi song? That's where I that's where I was. And I I can maybe match them. Like, do you guys you guys do know Taylor Swift? Okay. All right. Well at least we have one. We have one in common. In in any I don't know how I got on that um got on that tangent but uh, oh yeah it's because of where I am on social media just Facebook Twitter and Instagram you can find Corey Truax you can also email the sh- email me at Corey Truax Show at gmail.com Corey Truax Show at gmail.com final introductory comments is you can find the final episode of the Corey Truax Show in its current format on WHRT this Saturday at eight a.m. and I guess eight p.m. as well. Um, the Encore presentation, so you can find that final episode that I will be recording for you all this evening. And then I forgot to mention in hour number one, my favorite thing, besides being husband to Nicole, is that I get to be the elder uh, for Pastor for Teaching at Beachwood Church in Greenville. I know we're growing like crazy in Greenville. There's actually a special coming up on WIFF called Growing Pains. I think they're doing it at 11 p.m. this Wednesday night, where WIFF is going to talk about Greenville County's growing pains, that we just have... People coming like crazy and nowhere to put them. It, it's just, guys, it, it's me going to work because I have a long commute, so I, I pass a lot of areas. There are times where I, I will leave for work. I'm driving up 25, and it will be an empty field with a bunch of like pipes sticking out of it. And when I come home, there are three houses framed just up in that field. In the, like, as I drive by the next day, all right, we're at 10 houses now. I come back from work, we're at 12 houses now. They're just popping them up everywhere. And even over in Easley now, there are, uh, man, there's got to be six, I think it's six, six housing developments. A couple of them are duplexes. We're just putting whatever we can up anywhere to put people places. And as people move here, we, the churches, need to be ready as well. Matt thought about us this week at Beachwood. I don't know how many more people we could have gotten in there. Like it was, it was about to get to that spot where it's like, uh, everyone move in, scoot in. We're gonna get some folks in here. So if you're not, uh, if you don't have a church home, you're invited. Beachwood, we'd love to have you. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us so just Google us. Beachwood dot, uh, excuse me, just Beachwood Church in Greenville, South Carolina. I'll line up. All right. I opened my New York Times morning. They have a morning newsletter, the New York Times that I don't necessarily read, but I peruse for headlines and see what's what's going on. Just how, to, how out of touch sometimes they are. This is their first story today. I promise I'm coming back to the thing I wanted to talk about. This is uh, Christians moving forward, what that looks like, all that. But it struck me over the break. Their 
above-the-fold headline, as it were, is Good Morning. Americans use Fahrenheit, but many climate reports exclusively use Celsius. That, that's going to be your top story? And I started, I started skimming it, and it is a fairly long story about how Americans contrib- contribute poorly to the fight against climate change because we use Fahrenheit. Well, you know what I say then? The rest of the world needs to come our way. Okay, you all, get off your Celsius, your high horse Celsius, come on over to Fahrenheit and we'll address the climate change thing together. But you want know to I mean? like I think you, you can see what I'm, where I'm coming from. That's your top story was how we are off base with, regarding climate change because we use Fahrenheit. Meanwhile, there is still a, am I right? There's still a war in Ukraine. Am I, am I right that there's still, I don't know how much some of this political news means, but there's, Am I not right that we have some real systemic risk in the banking system right now? Like that, don't, I don't want to scare anybody on the financial side, but there's a lot going on for the New York Times to open with. we got to stop using Fahrenheit, everybody. Sounds like something I would do to be funny. Like I would come on the air, like, guys, that's something very important I need to talk to you about. Like super significant for, for world affairs. we gotta, we got to start using the imperial system when it comes to measuring. Like this, this thing not using meters and centimeters and millimeters, it's a really big deal. And you'd all laugh. Oh, it's funny. It's funny that you think that's important. But the New York Times actually thinks it is important. And then one other quick story I had over the break that I, I read, and I'll, we'll take a break. I'll come back and do the thing I told you we would do. I just find this to be super funny. The, there's a council meeting in Florida at Clearwater, Clearwater, Florida. They're talking about building a like a $90 million municipal complex there in Clearwater. And the way that their city council works is how most work. There's a mayor who presides over the city council, but the city the city council ends up voting on everything. The mayor is the executive. He executes what the city council chooses to do. And in some places, and it appears the, the case is here in Clearwater, Florida, the mayor also gets a vote. I think Greenville set up a little differently Knox White, our mayor of now 30-something years, he has a lot of power and can do things at an executive level without the city council, I think. But most most cities are set up that way. The city council is really the legislative body. The mayor just carries out their, their legislation. Apparently, Clearwater can't afford this thing, and they are going to try to finance like 60, am I right? Yeah, $60 million of the $90 million. And the duly elected mayor of the town get so frustrated that on the spot, you should go watch this. It's it's very funny. He resigns on the spot, starts packing up his briefcase, walks out. And then I love this quote. I wish, there, there we go. Uh, yeah, here we go. He was the wrong guy for the job. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a control find for that quote. I'm concerned. Here's the quote. I'm concerned where the city is going. This is simple math and we're not doing well on the math test. And then he packed up his stuff and went home. I dig it. Just to, here's something I've noticed over my adult life. It seems more and more, the leaders I have, not at work and not at church, I'm talking about in politics in particular, at the federal level, state and local, no matter their age, they can be in their 70s or they can be in their 30s. But what I notice from our governmental leaders is immaturity. We are led by childish people. Just, uh, old, just fundamental adult stuff. Is You can't have everything you want, right? That's how life works. 
you make trade-offs. You you have to choose not to have. If you want to choose health, you have to choose not to have dessert every night. Okay, so you can't have everything you want. If you want to choose to, uh, if if you want to choose this really cool vacation that you want to go on in a year, you got to stop door dashing everything. Okay, you're gonna to have to stop spending money on these things throughout these years if you want this thing over there. Life is not getting everything you want all the time. This is this is how life works. And politicians tend to come along now. And we used to be that. Remember we had a president who said, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. There are presidents who would say, either in wartime or in economic hardship, we, we can't have everything. And so we're cutting this or cutting that. France has this right now. They're trying to raise the retirement age from 62. Hold on for a second and just recognize that. Their retirement age is 62. I very much intend on being vibrant, healthy, and productive well past 62. You're not putting me out the pasture at 62. At some level, as fast as I've as life has gone by, I feel like I'm almost there. It won't be long. I'm gonna I'm not gonna be retiring at 62. That was your retirement age. Trying to raise the retirement age slowly, gradually to 64. Put people in the streets in France. But why do they need to do it? You're broke. You can't pay all that. It's how we are talking about Social Security now. No, guys, we, it's not there. It's not that someone wants to cut it or is, is uncompassionate. The money doesn't exist. And in my age group who didn't have any kids to go produce the Social Security revenue that we're going to need, of course you're not going to have Social Security. You didn't have any kids to go produce the revenue. And for that matter, some of you oppose immigration like crazy. You didn't have the kids to produce the revenue, and you didn't. You don't want to import any people to produce the revenue to pay your Social Security. So you want to not have kids. You want to only work till 65, and you want to be paid for all your health care and everything for all, all the years after you, quote, retire. You can't have everything. Adults know this. And then politicians come along and say, no, you can have everything. Everything you've ever dreamed. It was, it was supposed to be a, a funny, it was a comedy Napoleon Dynamite when I was a kid. I think I was 16, 17 when that movie came out. It's an absurd movie. It's dumb, but it was a cult classic. And there's a character in it who's running for student class president whose, whose name is Pedro. He says, vote for Pedro. All your dreams come true. And that's where we are. Every city council person, every county council person, everyone is Pedro now. Everyone in Congress, everyone running for president, everyone is Pedro now. Just If you vote for me, all your dreams will come true. And I want to say to them, grow up. One, your, your, my dreams are not your responsibility. My dreams and aspirations belong to me. You go do something else with your time. Two, no, I can't. I can't have everything I want. Grow up. Gra grab life for what it is. You're going to have to trade some stuff. There are some things you want that you're not going to get. And if you trade them, you might get something better. Sometimes you don't. That's how life works. And we should all embrace it. All right, here's my question. What if, from the first hour, we got everything we wanted? And... I mean, the church in the United States starts doing its thing, and we see conversions, and there's been a lot of talk about revivals this year. And there's just conversions everywhere. And this, the CEO, the CEOs of Hollywood Studios, they get converted and they ask, what does it mean to run a movie studio as a Christian? The folks who run the music industry, the folks who run the Oscars and the, uh, and the Emmys and the Grammys, the MTV Music Awards, they're converted. They become a brother and sister to you. And they ask, what does it mean for me to run these award shows? 
What does it mean for me to run this music studio? The CEOs of the big companies in Silicon Valley become believers. What are we ready to teach them? What are we prepared to say about how they run their businesses? And Are, are we ready for that? I think, it's, I think it's something we haven't thought about enough because we have held on to a theology of rescue for too long. That we're just waiting for rescue. We're not marching forward. And so I, I would love for you to wrestle through those questions. Here's something I'm afraid of. That if we got... Uh, if we got what we wanted and there was mass conversions that we wouldn't know how to rule well we wouldn't know how to be CEOs well we wouldn't know how to lead school boards well and what our responsibilities would be what I I think here's the core fear I think we have so internalized a disdain for the unbeliever that we wouldn't know how to to lead a bunch of unbelievers. That's not a healthy place to be. Listen, I let me let me affirm. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of unbelievers out there that hate your guts. You see them all over the internet. That's the ones that usually get all the attention. They hate your way of life. They hate everything. They hate everything good. They hate everything biblical. But I think there's been an internalization of the unbeliever as the enemy to destroy. I think if that if that's the ethic we come to, then we're going to see Christians come to power and not know how to love their enemy and not use their influence to do good for all people. That's one. I think one is we have internalized that the unbeliever is the enemy when they're not. There's someone else made in the image of God that we're for and that we would want to lead well, rule well, uh, to glorify God, and also image to the unbelieving world what it looks like to be a, a servant leader, a charitable, a, a charitable leader that chooses their, their people over themselves. I fear that if we were to get some kind of real influence in music, movies, TV, that our creative muscle has atrophied. Christian art is largely, is largely of low quality. I've only watched a couple episodes of The Chosen. I understand it has some some problems I think I would critique. I'm not super familiar with it, so I, I can't get into specifics. But man, that that is good art. It looks really well done. It's It seems high quality. And, it, and it's the Jesus story. I know some folks are uncomfortable with writing any words for Jesus to say in a scripted series that aren't specifically Bible. I'm not super uncomfortable with that. I can see how it can get problematic, but... But how often do we get the chosen? That's a rarity. Usually Christian art's not great. And why? Well, we atrophied the muscle. We understood who our, our audience was. Our audience became middle to upper middle class suburban people. And so we make art that appeals to them. So it doesn't take any risks. It's not art that challenges any kind of cultural status quo. It tells sweet little emotional stories with happy endings. And those are good, if done well. But it seems to be the only story we know how to tell. The Bible doesn't have just those stories. The, Bible's have, the Bible has stories of real longing, real despair, real questioning. Um, imagine 
Job the movie, where you really do come down to the end and you don't get an answer to your question. You get a call to trust God. What if we got what we wanted and school boards across the country were being run by Christians? Have we so atrophied our intellect muscle that we wouldn't know how to organize those schools properly? That we wouldn't know how to teach kids the fundamentals they need to know. The classical model of education, that's classical doesn't just mean old. There's actually a mod, model of education called classical. It tends to understand that for children to come up and be productive members of a polis, of a, of a society... They need to know from where they came. They need to know the literature that made them. They need to know the stories that made them up. They need to know the problems of their history, but also the points of pride. Would we know how a Christian would organize a literature and history curriculum, or do we just know how a conservative would do it? And are they distinct? Or are we so atrophied in our intellect that we would struggle to find teachers qualified to teach the sciences, the history, the history in English from a, from a biblical worldview perspective. I fear that's the case. You know, there was a prime minister in Canada or Britain in 2006 or seven. Can't remember if it's Canada or Britain. I can't remember which year, but the story stick with me on the story. There was a leader in parliament in one of those countries when gay marriage was becoming legal in that country. And he was part of the liberal party. He was part of the progressives, so the equivalent to Democrats here. And as that was taking place in parliament and happening in his party, he resigned his very powerful post. And while I think he's wrong on a lot of politics, he said just straight up, I, I'm a follower of Jesus. Marriage is between one man and one woman. I can't be part of this. And he walked away. If that started happening in politics, but also in government, are we prepared for what that would mean? I'll, I'll give you a very specific example. I got together here recently with the host of another show called Westminster Doxology Podcast. I'll, I'll share that on my feed, by the way, today. I will upload the audio. You should go listen to that conversation where he and I talk in depth about these things. He shared a story about working for a uh, like a check-in-to-cash type place, like a title loan where people, usually in financial stress, go to these title loan companies, hand over the title to their car. They pay absorbent interest, often the case, because the business model of these title loan places is to have you miss payments so they can repossess your car and then sell your car off at auction. That's their plan. Their plan is to take people in financial distress, get them to take a gigantic loan they can't pay back, and then take their car from them. Take from them the thing they use to actually go make a living. I'm going to call it an immoral business. That doesn't even feel free market. It feels predatory. So what if... The, places, the, the folks who run those places become Christians tomorrow and they decide, this isn't right. This level of interest, I can even see in the Old Testament law in Deuteronomy, this level of interest isn't right. This business model of trying to get to people's cars to sell them off at auction, it's not right. And those places evaporate. 
are we, the denominations, ready to step up? Have we thought about what it would mean to have a, a Christian financial system? I think about even the model of ministry we do. There are people even in the Baptist Convention right now who go to plant churches in hard places, even in the upstate, where if they are successful in making converts and building a church in that part of Greenville, no one's tithing. And even if they do, they are not tithing at a level that could support the ministry in that part of Greenville. And we've done a decent job in the convention to say to those church leaders, okay, we got you. If you're going to go do ministry in poverty, then we who are not in poverty, who have a lot, we're going to support you. Yes, go make converts of the poor. And if they can't contribute, we'll contribute. Right. So if that's happening in the denominational level, what about in the actual financial sector? Because you know Bank of America and Wells Fargo, don't, they don't want to make microloans. They have no interest in those things. Man, but what if the, the church was ready to do that kind of stuff? Like what, what if we actually start being successful? I think I'm just landing here. I got however many years I got left. I suspect it's over 40. I'm not waiting for rescue. I refuse. We march forward. And the Lord might choose to work with faithful Christians who march forward in evangelism, in living lives consistent with what we say we believe, loving the image of God on others, even people who disagree with us, holding to the Jesus principle that if you want to be first in this kingdom, you're going to serve the people around you. You're going to love them. Even the unbeliever. Even the outsider. And as we both do good work, do justice and mercy, and then open our mouths to talk about why, that there would be converts. I'm not ready to give up, guys. And I just don't think uh, I'm going to get anything... I don't think any of the good stuff we want is going to come primarily through changing laws. That will be a byproduct. I think the law changing will be a byproduct of us being effective as, as Christians. I don't see any other way forward. I'll give you this from a recent sermon I got to preach, and then we'll take a break. When Jesus was asked by Pilate, are you a king? He says, well, you say I'm a king. And what he's, what he's really saying there is, yes, I am a king, but you don't know what that word means. And you don't know what kind of kingdom I have. Because all you imagine is violence, and all you imagine is power and making people do stuff. So yes, I'm a king, but no, not like you think. There's a preacher, I think his name was C.M. Lockridge, out in California, said of this statement. The, the people there, after, after Pilate gets that answer, they say, give us Barabbas, give us Barabbas. The reason the state, the reason the people would want Barabbas freed, or the reason that Rome would be okay with freeing Barabbas, is because you can always crush Barabbas. You just get more guns. You get more swords. You get a bigger army. You can always crush Barabbas. But how do you stop a revolution that just comes from underneath? How do you stop a revolution that multiplies itself by doing kindness and speaking the gospel to the other parents in the PTA or on the soccer team. How do you stop a revolution? 
that comes from you sacrificially serving and loving your coworkers and sharing the gospel with them and you replicate the army. How? How do you stop it? You can't. Which is why Rome says, yeah, yeah, let Barabbas free. We'll crush him again. We got to kill this Jesus guy because the way he rules can't be stopped. Hope you partner with me. That's the way I want to do it for these 40 years. If you subscribe to my podcast feed, what's about to happen next is a bit of a review for you. Like it's a, let's call it a rerun, but maybe worthwhile to do that rerun. The weekend that just passed us, there was a conservative author who was try, trying to promote her book, said the word woke in an interview, and the obviously antagonistic interviewer stopped her to ask, hey, can you give me a definition of that? Totally fair question. What's the definition of the word woke? And this young lady embarrassed herself. She just froze. I, I kind of understand. She, is, she apparently had done like a dozen interviews that day. And when you're doing book promotion, that's very normal. You just go from interview to interview to interview, promoting your book. But it's also inexcusable. In discourse, in conversation, if you're going to use a term, you need to have a definition of it ready. And on this show, I've had some of you complain to me when I say words like eschatological or premillennial or postmillennial rapture, uh, premillennial rapture or postmillennial eschatology. You don't like these big theological terms. But if you ask them of you ask them for me definitions, I could give you succinct, simple definitions of what it means. So if we are going to complain as we should about what wokeism does in our culture, if we're going to criticize it, we need a definition of what that word means. Because it just doesn't mean liberal. There's a distinction. If we're going to say critical race theory is a problem in our schools, we need to know what we're meaning when we say those words. So while this will be a little bit review for you who listen to the podcast feed, I'd want to give you that. I want to equip you to know what that means. So first, wokeism. Wokeism is an alternative religion. It is in opposition to, or in a, not parallel, it's another option, to all the religions of the world. It has tenets of a religion just like we do. Examples for a moment, uh, it has an original sin. Like, we believe in original sin. It was not trusting God. The original sin for wokeism is privilege, if you have a privilege over someone else. You can have a conversion experience. Your conversion experience is to become woke. And you become woke by becoming an ally. It's confessing your sin of privilege and pledging to use your privilege for those who are disadvantaged in your in your worldview of privilege and disadvantage. So it's a, a separate religion, but it's, it's primarily made up of two faith statements or two tenets. Number one is intersectionality, and number two is critical theory. If you are a wokest, your worldview is based primarily on intersectionality and critical theories. So intersectionality, what's that mean? It's a, it's a philosophy from about 40 years ago, came out of the universities, mostly Ivy League, that said, key here, you aren't you. Gary isn't Gary, Corey isn't Corey, you aren't you. You are only your categories. You are white. You are, they, they've made up a new term called cis, which just means you're, you don't have a mental illness called gender dysphoria. You are, I'm white. I'm cis, I'm Christian, I'm male, I'm able-bodied. I'm definitely not Corey. I only have categories. Some categories give you privilege points. 
and some categories give you victim points. And as many times as you can, you can have an intersection of your victim points, you become more victimized. So a black gay woman has three intersections. And so she's more victimized than the black woman because the, this black woman is heterosexual. So she doesn't have as many intersections of victim, and, victim, and ta, victim mentality. So intersectionality says you are never you. There's no such thing as an individual. There's only group categories. And it's all going to be then based on privilege versus victimization. That's intersectionality. you got to believe that if you're going to be woke. Which then leads into tenant number two, critical theories. There's not just critical race theory. There's critical gender theory. There are several critical theories. Critical theory posits that you have uh, your righteousness or your goodness is based on your categories. So it takes Marxism, which had two categories, your proletariat or bourgeoisie. You're the poor working class, and then that's proletariat, or you're the bourgeoisie, you're the rich. The rich are the bad people, the proletariat are the good people. It's the job of the proletariat to come together to overthrow the bourgeoisie and bring in equality. That was Marxism. Marxism's paradigm just gets brought, brought into other things. So critical race theory would say there's categories. There is the oppressed and there is the oppressor. You are only those things. You are, you are fundamentally, again, you're not a person. You are your race. You are your ethnicity. It's the fundamental, most important thing about you. And if you're in these groups of ethnicities, you are the victim. If you are in these other groups of ethnicities, basically white people, you are the oppressor. And nothing else matters about you. That's your critical race theory. So even when we say things like we got to make sure there's not critical race theory in schools, we need to have the examples that there's an elementary school in Florida I saw that had students, like nine-year-olds, identify their intersections, identify their privilege points. That's a worldview. That's a religious worldview that you would see yourself not as you, but only as your categories. And we don't want that for kids. We want them to have the better message that I got when I was coming up is that you're an individual. You're, you're unique. And that's okay. That's a good thing to be you. You don't need to be your categories that you've been placed in. So what is wokeism? It's intersectionality, that there's victims and oppressors. And then there's critical theories, that the more vi victimhood you get through your intersectionality, the more, more you should be listed to, the more power you should have, and we should diminish the power and influence of those with fewer intersections that are the oppressors. And I think one more core thing about the critical race theory part is racial essentialism, that the most important thing about you is not how you behave, it's not, where you, it's not where you come from. It's not your culture. The most important thing about you is your ethnicity. And nothing could overcome it. That's why critical race theory people can't stand the stories of individual achievement from those in the victim classes. They don't like the achievement stories of a racial minority, of a, of a religious minority, because it breaks their worldview. Because that person has established... I'll take Tim Scott, our senator. Tim Scott has established that he's not a victim. Consider that. Let's consider two, probably the two most prominent political figures in South, in South Carolina. Nikki Haley and Tim, uh, Tim Scott. Nikki Haley and Tim Scott have intersections. They are black. Tim Scott came from absolute poverty. Nikki Haley was from a perceived religious minority, is an ethnic minority, and a woman. 
both of them beat out a bunch of old white guys in primaries. And you know who voted for them? White conservatives in South Carolina. That's who empowered those two people. And so they break the paradigm of critical race theory because they're not victimized. They, be, they overcame their, ca- their categories. So that's what we say when we say what, what we say when we mean, excuse, I'm sorry, what we mean when we say woke is folks that racially essentialize and to hold to intersectionality as a worldview. Those are those definitions. I'm sorry to that young lady who could not come up with a good definition on the spot. feels weird to say, but I think I'm about to do my final story on live radio ever. Don't know how, don't know how to feel about it, and especially because what it is, you know, I've I tried to mark myself in my adult life of doing more spiritual content, more Bible content than what we're about to do. Uh, but you know, while this might be the end of live radio, it is not the end of radio for me. It's not the end of broadcasting. I'm going to continue over on the Corey Truax show. So maybe I'll be a little, maybe I'll I'll remember this moment <laughs> a little less because uh, there there will be more to do. But here's where I want to finish the show today. Over on LinkedIn. I know you're everyone's everyone's favorite uh, website uh, for social media, right? They send you a gajillion emails until you tell them to stop. LinkedIn is super aggressive with how much email they send. A guy named uh, something Bayard, I think, or his name is Bayard Winthrop. He is the CEO of a company called Something Giant, American Giant, or some, something like that. They make they make clothes. They're an apparel company, and they're here in the Carolinas. He wrote an essay with the premise I would argue him saying. Uh, I'll read to you. This is about halfway through the essay. Bayard writes, Just so you know where I stand, I think jobs matter. I won't go on a rant, but we have spent too much time over the last 40 years figuring out how to make things cheaper and not thinking at all about how shipping manufacturing overseas ends up hurting urban and rural communities that depended on those jobs to keep their communities vital and thriving. Cheap products are good, but if they cost us the viable jobs that hold our communities together, they aren't worth the cost. That's a tough one for me. I'm a big free trader. I know you'll be aghast at this. I like NAFTA. I was a huge fan of the... I'm not a huge fan, but a pretty big fan of the Pacific trading partnership that didn't go through uh, for free trade across the Pacific with a lot of Asian countries. I thought that was an important point of diminishing China's influence over Asia and making us a better trading partner with those folks. We just ended up not having that agreement. But folks like me need to count that cost. He's making a decent point here. We did choose, primarily through NAFTA, we chose to get cheap stuff. The cost of getting cheap stuff was that textile mills in South Carolina closed down because those that apparel was going to be made in Mexico or China. The cost of getting cheaper shoes was that those shoes would not be made in America, they'd be made in China and in Mexico. There are social costs to that. Jobs do matter. They're dignifying. They're in some ways unifying. Because when you go to work, you do go to work with people who don't think like you. You go to work with people in different life stages that, that people even outside of the church have a, a place to congregate. Work was where you could congregate. Bump up against other people. And when we chose to get cheap stuff, which is the choice I still think I would have made, 
we cause a lot of the disintegration that we that we have culturally. Something I've talked about on, the, on this show a lot over the years is we're more transient than we've ever been. People move now more than they've ever moved. And it's largely because they didn't have that job in their hometown where they could just go to the manufacturing center, go to the mill, go to the... Uh, the word I'm thinking of is uh, where my where my grandmother used to work. She was a seamstress. And they made they made apparel here in West Greenville. Those shops went away, and so people didn't have a place to work, so they have to move around, which just causes that cultural disintegration. We we atomize, a t o m i z e, atomize. We become just us or just our family unit, and we are integrated into our neighborhoods. Talked about this on the show a lot, too. Recently had a conversation in my own life with some folks about this. I've I've seen it in us, how skeptical we become of our neighbors. How skeptical we are of anybody. A knock on the door now is a, it's an emergency. We've got to have a camera to tell us who's here. And then I think about the stories... I've heard in West Greenville from older folks is one one of the reasons it's important to talk to older folks. They've got cool stories. There used to be a baseball league here for the mill villages. Like the kids would play in a baseball league and it was just kids in your neighborhood that you play against the other kids in another neighborhood. Brought the families together. It brought the neighborhood together. And this guy writing is saying, hey, when you decided you wanted to have cheaper jeans, you decided to disintegrate the places that would bring a community together. Back to his essay, he writes, Jobs bring us together. They connect us, even with people we disagree with. And, and in this moment of disconnecting online dating and Zoom meetings and Amazon delivering everything, jobs matter to us even more. DC has spent too much time shipping jobs overseas to get us cheap stuff. It turns out that cheap stuff is very expensive. We pay for them with closed factories and jobless communities. Again, that just hits me hard because I would be a voice for cheap stuff. It's called competitive advantage. If another place can do something for less and you end up spending fewer dollars on your jeans, it means you have more money in your pocket to spend it on something else. And so you grow the economy generally. You grow your economic output by making things cheaper. Well, what's the cost of making things cheaper? Disintegrating jobs in your own country. I'm not saying we did the wrong thing. I think we, because the church was diminishing at the same time, unfortunately, and the church wasn't doing its job, jobs were the only thing, employers were the only thing where people had to congregate. People weren't going to church anymore. We were not a spiritually healthy enough people to get rid of the jobs. Going back to his essay, if you've spent the last couple of decades wondering whether China is a friend or a foe, I hope the last couple of years put that conversation to rest. In my judgment, the Chinese government has made its position quite clear. Over the past 40 years, we opened our markets to China, hoping that access to a free, modern, capitalist society would encourage them to become benevolent. That policy has been an abject failure. I thought that too. I thought opening our markets to China would make them want to become freer and more capitalistic. It made them more capitalistic, but not freer. Then he talks about some ideas on how to help this. I mean, he said he wanted fair trade, not free trade. He says, equalize the playing field and let American workers truly compete. 
his idea is if a country puts any tariff on us, we put it right back. So right now, I, I pose that as a free marketer for this reason. When China puts a tariff on us, all they're doing is taxing their citizens. We're, if they still buy our stuff, their citizens just pay more. And so if, if China wants to subsidize our exports by putting tariffs on it, I'm in for that. And we don't tariff a lot of their stuff. We don't tariff their things because, again, we. why would we? Why would we subsidize their exports? Well, if they want to sell us cheap stuff, we'll take the cheap stuff. So, but he, he says don't do that. We're, to have American workers compete, you, 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 match, you match your tariff for tariff. And then he, he did talk about one that I didn't know about. It's called the de minimis loophole, where if it's under... If an import is under, I think it's $500, there is no, uh, it, it, none of the tariffs or things apply to it. And so he talks about these apparel makers. Like, There's a big one. Let's listen. Your daughters, your sisters probably use it. It's called Sheen. It's a big apparel company out of China. Because their, uh, their cost of shipping, if you're buying one garment at a time, it escapes all the, the taxes and tariffs and duties. He's making the argument that that puts apparel makers in America at a disadvantage because there's no taxes or duties being paid on those do- on those garments. I think you might have a point there. My point here being, I, yeah, my free market might have gone too far and didn't count all the cost, including social costs, of having cheap goods here when you do need good jobs to hold people together. I think I'm, I'm reevaluating. I think it's worth reevaluating. In these final 20 seconds, I'm grateful to you. I also want to say a quick word of honor to Mr. Gary Miller for letting me do this for all these years. Uh, an absolute legend in the industry. I mean, much thanks to him. Thank you for listening. You can still stick with the Corey Truax Show in the coming years. Just find me at CoreyTruax.com or wherever you find podcasts. Dr. Beam is back tomorrow. Thanks for listening.